This episode of the MedTalk podcast is brought to you by European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer, a publication covering the entire supply chain of pharmaceutical manufacturing. Subscribe now at epmmagazine.com. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the MedTalk podcast, a show covering all the latest news and insights from the world of life sciences. I'm Ian Bolland, the editor of MedTech Innovation News, and I'm joined by Rhys Armstrong, the editor of European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer. Usually, we start with an update about what's been happening with COVID-19, but there's been so many stories in the past week, we think this episode is going to largely cover the pandemic. Um, where to start, though? And I think we're going to start with the the one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine and why it might, it might be an important factor after all. Uh, Rhys, um, I believe that you reported on EPM this week that uh, the J&J vaccine was granted conditional marketing authorization by the EU Commission. Can you tell us more? Yeah, sure. Hey, Ian. So, unsurprisingly, I think J&J have finally been granted the conditional marketing authorization by the European Commission for its one-shot COVID-19 vaccine. Um, this has been going on for, for some time, as we know, particularly in the US, they were um, harping on about it before um, the new year, about what it could mean for vaccinating their citizens. Um, the decision in this case by the European Commission was made following um, just data from the company's phase three ensemble study, which has enrolled over 40,000 participants to you know evaluate, evaluate the safety of the vaccine. Uh, what it's found is that, um, on average, Johnson Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine was uh, 67% effective in preventing COVID-19 compared to those who have had uh, a placebo. And protection was observed after 14 days and maintained after 28 days following vaccination, typical standard stuff. Um, but I, I suppose the important factor of this, and of which we've spoken about before, is it's the, the first one-shot vaccine for COVID-19, which we're seeing. So that should, it should help once supplies start coming, sort of rapidly um, expanding the vaccination rate. And it will just be less pressure on vaccination centres for having to get people in twice, you know, over the period of months. It's also um, less of an issue for the supply chain as well, but given that we've undertaken the rollout of both Pfizer and AstraZeneca in the UK, they're both two-dose vaccines, and we'll come on to the uh, UK's sort of latest um, deal with supply later. But uh, I think we mentioned before that it was that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was 67% effective in preventing COVID-19 compared to participants who had received placebo. Uh, I actually find a bit about, later on in your article, quite interesting about its, uh, its storage and distribution, because it, it, I think it's really important that it uses standard vaccine technologies. There's nothing... Uh, there's nothing exceptional that has to be put into in, into place to um, to that that will, that will delay the uh, both the supply distribution and administration. Yeah, one of the big things when we were in the midst of COVID nineteen and when you know these companies were working on the vaccines was just how we were going to. I say we obviously just you know <laughs> um, you know pharmaceutical companies and the logistics suppliers how they were going to store and then distribute the vaccines because these are very fragile molecules and therapies which need to be stored at a certain temperature for a certain period of time before they start to degrade. And if they're, you know, exposed to d different temperatures, then the, they can become ineffective. So there was a lot of talk around sort of the cold chain technologies needed. In terms of Johnson & Johnson, they've said that it's you know, able to be stored and distributed using just regular technology that have been used for vaccines um, and which should help to deliver to remote areas more easily. Uh, it's estimated that the vaccine can remain stable at min minus 25 to minus 15 degrees centigrade for a maximum of three months, uh, which can be at routine refrigeration at temperatures of 2 to minus 8 centigrade as well. So, important for, as you say, the supply chain and the distribution, 
just for getting to countries which are perhaps you know don't have the um infrastructure in, in place to get vaccines out there yeah in particular that's noteworthy about the uh, johnson and johnson uh, the amount of amount of orders there's been 500 million ordered by covax nations as well when we were talking about infrastructure um of certain places that basically they they need this to be as close as to regular technology as possible in terms of its storage so i think it's it, it's good news for those for those uh covax nations um it's worth um pointing out that given the subsequent stories that we're going to come on to about uh the amount that, that has been ordered by both the european union and the uk because you know we'll, we'll come on to um the EU row, as it has it as it has been portrayed, with the UK and potentially blocking other other, other vaccines leaving the block, they've ordered two hundred million doses of the J and J vaccine, and the UK has ordered thirty million doses. Um, I, I I think I think I may have mentioned on on a previous show that I think the uh, the, the J and J vaccine for the UK was probably a bit of an afterthought. They put Pfizer and AstraZeneca front and centre, and then Moderna afterwards. Yeah, it, it, I think it's just the case for the UK of just propping up their supply if they do need any sort of bolster vaccine doses um, to, to use, and at least we've got them at hand. Uh, I think I, I said on a previous episode that because it's the one dose vaccine, maybe it can help when there are potential supply shortages or just getting. Getting get getting the vaccine out to the uh, remainder of the population at speed. Unsurprisingly, the EU has ordered a large amount, um, which we'll come on to later. I, I suppose in terms of where they are at with their vaccination rates. Um, and yeah, core vaccinations getting five hundred million is important because G and G, from the outset, said it was developing the vaccine on a not-for-profit basis. Um, overall, it wants to supply a billion doses of the vaccine, 200 million as a first batch to Europe in 2021. Um, so, yeah, just overall good thing that it's coming out now. Okay, now we've got the positive news out of the way. We can go on to the, uh, the bit about AstraZeneca and blood clotting concerns. I mean, this has been an almighty... I, I, don't, I don't know how to describe it other than a mess in terms of how it's been handled because... We've seen throughout the past couple of weeks that both the World Health Organization and the European Medicines Agency have said this is a very good vaccine, it's effective and should be used. Yet we've had a number of countries, uh, such as Germany, the Netherlands and Ireland, temporarily suspend use of the vaccine due to blood blood sorry, blood clotting concerns. Let me get my words out. Now, I'm, I'm not entirely... I think... I think there is a good good case for due diligence. Obviously, there is. I mean, anyone's going to be a little bit concerned, I think, about taking a, what is a relatively new medicine because it's been developed at, at, at such speed. There's, there's bound to be concerns out there. And if they're going to see some kind of correlation, they've got to check for causation. But I wonder, has there been enough correlation to justify this kind of borderline outcry? Yeah, I, I don't think so, really. I I think due diligence is important in this case because every side effect or adverse event has to be reported to, to health authorities uh, when you have a new vaccine or, or, or medicine. It's Luckily, I think one, one of the good things is that it's been temporarily suspended and within the course of, say, a week, countries have now said it's, it's, it's safe, it's effective, we can begin start, starting to roll it out again. So it hasn't sort of set them back too long. I think the danger is because of the times we live in with social media and how how sort of um, anti-vaccine or extreme type of opinions can circulate on social media. What is the long-lasting damage it can do to um, vaccine hesitancy around the globe, particularly coming off the back of AstraZeneca's vaccine not being recommended at the start for people over 65, and now you've got this happening as well. So will it affect vaccination rates in the long term regarding this vaccine? Potentially. Hopefully it won't, but um, 
you know, the times we live in are a little bit um, strange in terms of how conversations do circulate, particular, particularly on social media. I mean, I think there has actually been, uh, in, the, in the case of, I think France is a particular example here of the, the response to AstraZeneca has, it's not been measured. Whereas I think in contrast, even though Denmark has, uh, you know, it's suspended use of it, but I think the, the, the response was at least measured because I think we've got a quote here from the Director General of the Danish Health Authority who said, it is important to stress that we, we have, sorry, we are by no means dis- discarding the AstraZeneca vaccine. We are merely stopping using it for the time being. There's strong evidence that the vaccine is both safe and efficacious. Is that how he's pronounced it? <laughs> but I only wish there were more measured responses like this in uh, in order for us to, uh, well, basically, in, in order for countries to be, you know, be trustworthy of the vaccine in the first place. Because if you actually look at the Vox Pops that you see on the news at the moment, I think there was Matt Fry on Channel 4 News, he's the Europe editor, I think. If, if someone will correct me if I'm wrong there. But he, even though there's, uh, there's, there's a case of, he, he asked them and says, well, you know, you approved this. You know, you're allowed to use it. Those and those first impressions that have been, oh, we're not, we're not entirely sure this works with the over 65. They count for a lot, and I think responses like we've we've heard from Denmark there, though they've taken this rather more cautious approach, that was the right tone to strike, and tone is important. Definitely, there's nothing wrong in suspending the use of the vaccine whilst more data comes becomes available. That's absolutely fine. In this case, I think the data was already strong enough because it was only it was a minuscule amount of blood clotting concerns. And when you look at the data, these are events that would have sadly happened with or without the vaccine being used. And it was no more, the events were no more um, happening on average due to, you know, because of the vaccine. Now, you know, putting that aside, Suspending the vaccine because these types of data are coming becoming available, that's absolutely fine. But you're right in saying, you know, the tone is really important because people within the EU, all around the world, are going to look to authorities on how well these vaccines are working. If, if that's their source of news, then they don't want to be under any impression that these medicines might be dangerous. Yeah, I mean, let's just pick up on that point about these, uh, these. This data isn't out of the ordinary in terms of you know the wider population who haven't had the vaccine. I think I saw somebody, you know, rather cheekily put on Twitter, uh, "We better suspend the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine now because someone who's had the second jab has been knocked over by a bus." It's the same principle. Yeah, it is pretty much the same principle. Um, you know, it's not a laughing matter because people have sadly died due, uh, due to the blood clots, but it isn't correlative in any sense and actually it's the opposite where i was i think it was the drug safety um research unit they were saying is actually potentially um the opposite where it's been bleeding cases have occurred following the vaccine more than blood clotting not related i don't think but it's the same this is a side effect that's happened that's just seemed to have happened following the vaccine so if we if we link everything to it, then we're in the danger of well, will these vaccines ever been out of their out of suspension? Yeah, exactly. I think now's a good time to mention the uh, the quote from the World Health Organization, who said this is an excellent vaccine. There was no reason to use it. The spokeswoman Margaret Harris told the Geneva briefing there was no causal relationship between uh, the shot and the health problems that have been reported. We're calling the calling the pause a precautionary measure. And she said, it's very important to understand that, yes, we should continue to be using the AstraZeneca vaccine. Yeah, I think these are just the conversations we're going to have going forward in terms of, you know, the more therapies and vaccines we have available for COVID-19. This was always an inevitable outcome, really, especially in the world we're living in today, that as soon as side effects are reported, then people will will put a lot of scrutiny into if there is any causation, which is fine because we want to make sure we're safe. But I think the most important point is that it has to be a measured and reasonable response and not an outcry of this vaccine is dangerous to use because they're not. Well, speaking of measured and reasonable responses, let's move on to 
the EU warning over vaccine exports. The European Commissioner, Ursula von der Leyen, has suggested that if supplies do not improve, then the EU will have to look into essentially cutting off the supply of vaccines being exported out of the EU. And she said the EU will reflect whether exports to countries who have higher vaccination rates than us are still proportionate. So, is the EU's response proportionate if it starts basically its own programme protectionism? This is a tough one because on the EU side, I understand why they're frustrated because I think they, in the past four to six weeks, exported something like 40 million doses of COVID-19, whereas the UK was seeing they haven't exported any to the EU. So I understand that their vaccination rates being as, as, as small as they are, why they're frustrated and why they want to take those measures. At the same time, I don't think it's up to them to say we can hinder the exports of pharmaceutical companies because that's just how global trade works, right? If the deals were struck beforehand, surely they have a um, you know you know a moral standpoint to to um, to stand by the the contracts that were signed between countries and. And the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, the, it's a really tricky one in a sense because I think this is being played out in the public eye when the only th- people that really know the details are, are probably the lawyers that thrashed out the contracts. I mean, we can take sides on mm. this all we like, but can we really make an informed decision without really knowing the detail? No, not really. It's, it, it is a tough one because... I think, well, one, it, it speaks to the nature of the pharmaceutical industry in that it's it's a competitive market, right? And unfortunately, countries with high higher wealth and higher income than, than other countries will stand the most to gain from uh, from doing deals with the companies because they can just pre-purchase um, all the supplies beforehand, which we've uh, discussed before. So it's really, I think it's more, on a, on a wider sense of things, it's more to do with the pharmaceutical market and how it operates and, and why during a time of a pandemic needs to be better systems in, in, in place to assure vaccines are distributed fairly. I think we should actually point out here that the, the main uh, the main vaccine that will be affected in terms of the UK would be the Pfizer vaccine because that comes from... Is it, is it Belgium or is it Germany that it comes from? You'll know this better than me. But that I think that is the main imported vaccine into the UK. Uh, we've outlined that the EU, mm-hmm. the EU is struggling to vaccinate their own citizens because 11 out of 100 people, you know, yeah, so 11% of the overall have received a dose. Um, when the UK is, the UK is currently at, 27.6 million on today's figures I, I've got in front of me, which is 41 people per right. 100,000. Yeah, 41, 41% of the of the population has received its first dose. So, I mean, we'll, we'll come on to um, the UK strategy a little bit later. But it's interesting that you've got the UK on pretty high up this uh, CNN leaderboard that I've got in front of me, whereas which has been led by Gibraltar and Israel and the Seychelles and the UAE. And if you, you, you've got to scroll a fair way down before you get to Hungary, and there's is 19, 19% of the uh, adult population has received its first dose. Uh, so even, uh, and if you scroll down further, there's, there's plenty of, um, of, of the EU27 that are, are fairly low down the list, but it's not, I won't say it's disastrously low because the, you've got the likes of, you know, it 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 just it just bears out that they they were pretty slow off the mark. I think that they are in a position to ramp, to ramp up really, and I think that's probably informing the uh, the rhetoric that's co- that's currently come out the the EU Commission. Yeah, I, I think what's the what's the damage between UK and EU relations as well if we're not willing to step in and help right now. We're at a really good position in terms of our vaccination rates. Our um, 
most at-risk citizens have been vaccinated or received one dose of the vaccine. We've got ample supply coming into the UK and we're still standing on the argument that, well, we've signed a 100 million dose contract with uh, AstraZeneca, which has to be delivered to us first before we can even consider exporting any, any vaccines. You know, should there be a little bit of um, a little bit of leeway on our side? I mean, certainly if they are adopting this uh, global Britain approach that they bang on about, but I mean, this actually brings me on to a little bit of a, uh, you know, something that's irksome for me in terms of the way it's been, rip- the entire thing has been reported, of uh, of an us against them by me- plenty of people who campaign for a certain outcome in the EU referendum who seemingly can't get over the fact they've won. Um, I mean, stop linking everything to Brexit. This is a different issue. You, you've got to be a really cold person as well to sort of make this into a, um, uh, into a competition. I was going to use harsher language there, but um, this isn't the time, time or place. Um, but to make it into a competition between the EU and the UK about who can vaccinate their citizens fastest and why we should or shouldn't help them, and then... Because ultimately, all you're all you're doing is arguing about people's lives. Unfortunately, I think that speaks to a wider societal problem that you know, political rhetoric in particular has gone into the gutter in the past twenty years. But maybe that's for another podcast entirely that isn't hosted by us two and isn't about life sciences. But we, um, I think we'll move on from there. Otherwise, I might well and truly get on top of my soapbox. But you actually did mention about the UK having <laughs> having ample supply um, at the moment. I mean, if I actually look at the the UK COVID-19 data, we are actually seeing a, a, a fairly healthy supply in March. But the UK has announced that there could be a, a shortage in supply at, at, the end of, at the end of March, but maintains it is still on course to vaccinate everyone over, fi- over 50 up until the 15th of April. So should we be worried? I, I don't think so. Um, I, th- I think, you, you know, like I said earlier, our most at-risk citizens have being given the vaccine, that should help bring hospitalisation rates down. We're having great fun with words today, Um, aren't we? I know, it's Friday. Quite close to the weekend, we've been busy all week. Um, But yeah, I think in terms of, you know, the the country's position, we're in quite a good place because, you know, the outlook citizens have received a vaccine. Hospitals should begin to see a reduction in capacity, hopefully. Uh, that might have already occurred, but I haven't been looking at sort of the bed numbers or anything like that. And we've ordered an, enough to vaccinate our population like four times over or something absurd. So we're in a good, a good, um, a good spot. Was this inevitable? And has it been the case that pharmaceutical companies have promised more than more than they can deliver in twenty twenty one? Uh, relating to how many doses they can get out. Vaccine manufacturing can be quite variable. And because of the global nature of it, you know, we've got the AstraZeneca vaccine being manufactured in India um, for a large part of the doses. As soon as we see some disruption in that supply chain, then it's it's a ripple effect, right? Yeah, I mean, you've mentioned the... um manufacturing of the AstraZeneca vaccine in India. This the Serum Institute of India that's, that's manufacturing the magazine. Um, they've suggested that a, a delay in supply to the UK is down to the Indian government, according to the Daily Telegraph, because they are temporarily holding up exports because of concern about rising cases in the country. Uh, they received tributes from Health Secretary Matt Hancock because they're producing 1 billion vaccines over the well, over the course of this partnership, and he's called it a partnership we can be proud of. Um, I think when you, if you're a citizen of the UK and you're a cricket fan, and you're seeing seventy thousand people attending cricket matches at the moment, and then you hear that they are delaying uh, vaccine distribution because the uh, uh, there's rising cases, you'll be saying, "Why are you letting them into cricket grounds?" Uh, I, I know I've just gone off on a bit of a tangent there, but it, I think it's a logical that's a logical argument to make. Yeah, they only had to look at Cheltenham last year to see that why they shouldn't do that. And Liverpool versus Atletico Madrid. Yeah, just sporting events in general, which have, it's, it seemed crazy because every government has, has been 
so adamant that these are things that need to reopen first as well to get people back in football stadiums and in, in other sporting stadiums. When you see things like this, I think the first instinct is to actually have a look at the, at the, at the policy they're showcasing to the world, which is they're, they're saying it's safe for, you know, for gatherings. We're not yet. And yet, uh, I mean, it's, it's it beggars belief on that one, I'm afraid, but... I think if we actually dig into a little more detail and stop me going on a, a tangent. The, uh, <laughs> it says, Hancock actually outlined that the UK is currently in the middle of a bump a few weeks for supply. This statement was on the 18th of March. We're recording on the 19th. So the story may well have moved on from there, but it, it's still worthwhile that we touch upon this, I think, even if it's even if it's in three or four weeks' time when you get, when you get to hear this. It, it's still a good reference point. He's saying that we're currently in the middle of a bumper few weeks of supply but in April supply will be tighter and 12 million people will need a second dose. Now I just want to pick up on the second dose aspect here because the UK has actually received a lot of plaudits over the past few weeks and months for its you know one jab approach and then you know second dose 12 weeks later. This graph that I actually sent to you yesterday Reese, um, shows you the the amount of people around the world who have got their first and second doses. Right, the race to get fully vaccinated is on CNN Health for anybody listening who wants to have a look at it. And at the moment, we look at the United Kingdom who have vaccinated 35.1% of the population with one dose. 2.8% are fully vaccinated. Let's compare that to... Other, other countries around the world. The United States has 12.3% of the country fully vaccinated and an extra 10.3% with one jab. And, and you, you're looking at, I think the disparity in terms of the one and two jab approach, it, it, the amount of people that have had one jab compared to uh, compared to two jabs, it, it's vast in the UK compared to, compared to anywhere else. Yeah, those numbers are quite, quite staggering really. Because we've um, we've amped ourselves up in terms of the, the one dose of, of approach, but overall, it's quite a small number of people who've been fully fully vaccinated. Um, those, the, the figures there, uh, the US has jumped up quite a bit as well um, recently, which is good because they they got off to a rocky start. So that's quite interesting to see that they're on a good track to get people vaccinated too. I'll just mention the US before. I think we're going to come on to them in a bit more detail later. But I think uh, one of Joe Biden's first pledges is that he wanted 100 million, uh, 100 million vaccinations, either 100 million shots, but within the first 100 days of his presidency. And I think he's actually achieved that by day 58. So you know, ever since he's been installed in the Oval Office, things have actually started ramping up a bit. I mean... It might be because of the person that's in there compared to the last one, but we'll comment on that later. Well, maybe. I was, I was actually staggered by the contrast across the board, in all honesty, because Israel gets talked about a lot as a as a leader in the vaccination race, in, a, in quotation marks there. But they have, I think, in total, the, the let me just work out here, 59.5% in total of the people in Israel have, have received at least one dose. Whereas I think it's fifty one point eight percent of the entire adult population is now fully vaccinated. I'm, I'm, I'm finding it hard to follow up from this, in all honesty, because it's actually quite that's quite a staggering statistic. Just the overall rollout of the vaccine has been. I know there's still a lot of work to do across the globe, but um, ten million doses per day as of March eighteenth. You know, that's considering it takes ten years to get a vaccine usually. And we've, not we, but, you know, the life sciences industry has developed multiple vaccines for, for, for essentially a new disease. And now they're being rolled out across the world at that type of rate. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, isn't it just? I mean, and we can only applaud them once again. But in terms of um, the UK supply, but I think we're actually going to link the point about the EU blo- blocking vaccines a little bit because... Uh, in reply to John Ashworth yesterday, who's the Labour spokesperson on health, he said that Matt Hancock said the supplies of Moderna are expected in the coming weeks. So Moderna has confirmed it is on track to meet its supply obligations to the UK and deliver in April. A Sky News report actually said that from 
uh, that the UK had ordered approximately 17 million doses in January. Um, I mean, I imagine that Moderna has been factored in, in in terms of the wider supply picture and the numbers they're expecting each month. But um, it, has it filled a hole, so to speak? So potentially. Moderna is still... The thing with the EU, you know, Moderna... Moderna's vaccine is um, produced in Switzerland by Lonza, I believe. So essentially, if the EU was in a, um, a still still in a poor position, could they threaten to block that vaccine coming out of coming out of the EU to the UK? Well, Switzerland's not a part of the EU, but has multiple trading agreements with the EU, which basically makes it part of the single market. So there is a possibility. I guess, but I think someone who's got better law know-how might actually be able to properly inform us on that one. The, but I imagine as soon as it hits the European Union territory, then then we're it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a different ball game. Possibly, I think I've just put my foot in it by thinking that Switzerland was in the EU there, and, and you've just pulled out some amazing geographical knowledge on my behalf. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, I've I've travelled to and from Switzerland from Germany over the border multiple times in one day. This is this is just to attend a football match, so I actually stayed in Germany and the football matches in Switzerland, and the, and the border is open, but there, but there is something of a check. So you know that's part of the reason that I have that that kind of geographical knowledge, Reese. Not just life sciences. <laughs> no, everything helps. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it, it could be that Moderna is, you know, we've got all these doses coming in, coming in, and it could just be the case that that is going to help boost our our, our numbers to what they expected to be uh, within within April, and and past that. Do you think that come the autumn time we're going to need a vaccination vaccination booster program because that was something that Hancock suggested, and I'm just thinking now where the reason that we've actually procured all of these all these doses, which we've said we can actually vaccinate the country three or four times over, and I think this might actually be the reason. It could be. Um, I, I, I think there's still conversation going around how effective the vaccine is for a certain amount of time, and obviously we need to think of how long COVID-19 is going to circulate throughout the country. If it's going to be a number of years, then yeah, then yeah surely we're going to need boosters. Yeah, that will be the logical step to take. But I think it's important to actually quote Hancock on what he uh, what he said to the to the public. Excuse me, on the eighteenth of March, he said to to any member of the public who is watching, what I would say very clearly is that the vaccination program is on track to meet the targets that we have set out. We are on track for the dates and the roadmap, and there is no impact on the roadmap from the changes to vaccine supply that we that we've been detailing in the last twenty four hours. So they're saying full steam ahead. Everyone over fifty is going to be vaccinated by the fifteenth of April. Everyone will be off, will be offered their first uh, vaccine by the end of the end of July, start of August, and yeah, there's even though they're going on the date and not dates slogan at the moment, they think that. A form of normality will return on the twenty first of June. Remains to be seen whether we actually get there, but let's, we're, we're no doubt going to keep a close eye on that. I think we both need a haircut. Yeah, but that can wait. I'm, I'm not. I'm not missing going to the going to the salon and having to pretend to be interested in in, in things. Yeah, what are they going to have to say this year? Because they can hardly ask you if you're going on holiday. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> Just... Well, I, I guess what, what have you been watching on, on Netflix? And for most people, but answer will be pretty much everything yeah we watch tiger king but anyway let's get back to the, the vaccine uh shortages story on uh, on oxfam uh sorry the um the, you you actually found a quote from i'm Marriott from the oxfam health policy uh oxfam health policy manager i apologize uh, responding to uh news that the uk could face vaccine shortages can you give us some more information on that yeah, Oxfam have been very vocal in terms of um, just how the vaccine should be dist- distributed across the world and sort of the um, the deals between rich countries and pharmaceutical co- companies. But she has said the reason the UK and other nations are now facing vaccine shortages is because a small number of pharmaceutical corporations have been granted monopolies over their production. These companies cannot produce enough, leading to widespread avoidable shortages that will cost lives. 
Um, it's a type of artificial rationing, which is hitting poor countries hardest, she said. Um, and overall, it's, it's hurting us all and is being allowed to happen despite much of the vaccine discovery and production being funded by taxpayers. I think regardless, I think shortages probably would have occurred either way, just through some aspect of the supply chain. I mean, they've always warned that the um, that the supply could be lumpy. But I think this is, is the first little lull in supply and then we're going to have another peak in supply when we get towards the summer. Um, I think the important thing is, is to not lose our heads over this just at the moment. I mean, if, it's, if it gets to a stage where there's zero coming in, then that, that's a completely and utterly different situation. But for now, keep your heads and if you had one jab, get your second one. Yeah, I mean, I, I, she has a point in terms of uh, the, the, the monopolies. I think better distribution channels are needed to ensure fair and equitable uh, vaccine coverage. But in terms of the supply chain, then, yeah, we, we were always going to come into, into some bumps in the road. It was like when the, uh, the start of the pandemic occurred and we had the API shortages from China and India. And that's just due to the global nature of the of the pharmaceutical industry and where production occurs for certain ingredients so you know once you hit um once you hit a bump in the production then it, it sort of um it affects the rest of the world because that is the nature of how the supply chain is throughout pharma now there's an argument there that we need to diversify and have production plants throughout europe throughout the rest of the world so things can move around more easily um, it's actually a point that was touched on in the latest episode of a MedTalk podcast with Tia the Pharmaceuticals. So give that a listen in all the pre- other previous episodes as well. Just a small plug there. Um, but yeah, it, it's unfortunately, it is just the nature of the farmer. But yeah, I, I, it's it's funny you mentioned that. I've actually got a piece going up on uh, MedTalk Innovation News in a, in a couple of weeks' time, which actually suggests that we need we need to be having, having a look at how the supply chains are operating. For, for whether we can prepare about this again. This actually also nicely leads on to something that I've actually written for the upcoming issue of the, mag- of the magazine, but that, so we'll, we'll come back to that later. Uh, but all of that, I think, actually does lead into you know, the public inquiry territory. But before we come on to that, and since let's just stay with vaccines for a little bit, I actually put something up on a, on the Tech Innovation News this week about virtual reality playing a role in combating needle phobia. Have you ever suffered ever suffered from needle phobia, Reese? No, I'm not too bad with needle phobia. I've seen virtual reality being used to treat a lot of phobias now, such as uh, fear of flying and heights. And I don't particularly like heights or flying, so that might be more suitable for me. Um, what, what about you, Ian? Um, I'm not the best on, um, on heights either, uh, but... Um... Uh, I've re- I really have developed something of a phobia in needles of the past few years. I think it, it goes back to an operation I had, but I don't. I think it was a time where I had a blood test and then fainted in the hospital, and now I just can't look at needles whenever they're going into me. I, I think I just don't like being poked. In all, in all honesty, never mind when there's something quite sharp going in, uh, go, going into my body. <laughs> but uh, it's. I think this is actually an, an interesting thing that the that Visa Health Group, uh, the company that's behind it. Uh, um, they partnershiped with this partnership with NHS trusts or uh, in uh, in Basildon and Brentwood and Kent and Medway. Um, I actually found it interesting that within this, that it, it's it's pretty much like cognitive behavioural therapy, uh, you know, which is widely used in the treatment of mental health because mm-hmm. it, it can be. But virtual reality in this case is being used to sort of bridge the gap between real life exposure and what the patient feels able to do at the time they enter for treatment, or in this case, have, have a vaccine administered. Um, I mean, I wouldn't mind giving this, just giving this kind of thing a go, because I, I think the principle of, of CBT is that you actually expose yourself to certain scenarios, and then you become more comfortable in it. And it's certainly not a bad idea if you're, li- if you're a little bit squeamish when it, when it, comes, to, when it, when it comes to the needle being administered. Yeah, and it does it on at least with other sort of forms of virtual reality therapy, um, it does it on a type of gradual basis. So for the fear of heights, I think it was an office building and you sort of went up different levels to gain confidence 
and eventually I think the highest was one was you stepped out onto a platform out of a window and looked down at the city the cityscape so that was type of uh, type of you know digital health treatments that we're, that we're seeing now for these type of CBT yeah, stuff. Does that doesn't uh, I mean there's been a couple of times where I've, att- I've attended CBT myself and the, the sort of basically it, it sounds very similar to the scale principle of from one to ten how do you how comfortable do you feel in this situation and you know ten being the highest. So and then, and then they sort of t- try and take you up levels yeah. to try and get, get you more into a more comfortable situation. Uh, the use of technology with it to make it a bit more stark, I think, I think is a is an excellent advancement. Not not just in the in the uh, in the case of going for your COVID nineteen jab, um, but I think we'll actually come around to earlier on in the pandemic of sorts because do you remember Dominic Cummings, Reese? Dominic Cummings. The name rings a bell. Did he have something to do with the, with the government? I thought he was signing the deal with Specsavers or Vision Express, one of those two. Oh, that's him. Of course we joke, but Dominic Cummings has been uh, he has been in front of House of Commons Science and Te- Technology Committee. A uh, couple of key points in his evidence. Um, at the time of when the pandemic was when the pandemic first struck the UK. He said the Department of Health and Social Care was a smoking ruin at the start of the crisis. And, uh, here's a key quote from him, it is not coincidental that we had to take it out of the Department of Health. We had to have it authorised very directly by the Prime Minister. This was in reference to the vaccination programme. We set up a task force on the advice of, of Sir Patrick Valance, who is the government's chief scientific advisor. And then, uh, another key quote from him is, in spring 2020, you had a situation where the Department of Health was just a smoking ruin in terms of procurement and PPE and all of that. You had serious problems with the funding bu- bureaucracy for therapeutics. We also had the EU proposal, which looked like an absolute guarantee program to fail, a debacle. It seems as though he's taking aim at a few people there, if you ask me. He's taking aim at the EU because he ran, I think he ran, is it vote, is it vote leave that he ran? And then... And there's, and there's been all sorts of murmurings in the, the gossip columns and, and the, uh, on the political pages of the newspapers, which suggest there's been friction in government between, you know, between certain sections. And Hancock's been on one side, and Cummings and Co may have been another. Uh, Hancock, unsurprisingly, dismissed Cummings' comments, saying the vaccine rollout had been a team effort. But I'm interested to get your thoughts here, Reese. Such non-words there. Right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> But one thing that he actually touches on, which I think is very key, is that he says there needs to be a long, hard look at what's gone wrong. Is that a call for a public inquiry? It should be, and I don't think the government should um, shy away from a public inquiry because whilst the vaccination rollout was being fantastic, earlier on in the pandemic we did see massive issues with PPE and supply and procurement. Look at the um, look at the test and trace cost. How much is that? Thirty-eight billion. There, thereabouts. For which has largely been as people ineffective program. Yeah, I mean, you've actually. Uh, I think you've actually been reading my editor's letter for the the issue of Medtech Innovation News there, Reese, because I actually call for part one of the inquiry to start now. I know Labour that Labour Party's call for one when the restrictions are due to be lifted towards the end of June, but I think you can start part one now, which is. Uh, it's a bit more the everyday factors of, you know, the the approach to procurement. Cummings has actually mentioned that. Um, even a broken clock can be right twice a day, I suppose. But the approach to procurement, um, the comments from Boris Johnson that have been reported by the BBC this week, I think, I think there was a Laura Koonsberg piece which suggested that Johnson was, jo- Johnson suggested that we should ignore it. In some way, when the virus was starting to emerge from Wuhan, um, the my, my point is is that there are lessons to be learned now. And if this is really a truly irreversible emergence from lockdown, what is stopping the the government putting lessons and putting measures into practice that can prevent us from? going into a another long lockdown and then future pandemic preparedness that is that is the summary of what of what i say but it's not just for 
I, I call for this not just because, you know, not for the sake of putting someone's head on a stick for 125,000 plus deaths in the country. I also think it's a it's a way to reevaluate the relationship between government and industry as well, and having a look at supply chains, you know, for whenever we might actually end up in this kind of situation again. Can is it as effective as it should be? What can we do? And that's the top and bottom of my editor's letter, and you can read it in the latest issue of MedSec Innovation News. Yeah, and I think overall that's the point. The points we should be taking out of the out of an inquiry. Unfortunately, I think the government will look at it and think whose head is going to rule. They don't want any type of scrutiny into their government about who has failed because we've already seen Hancock become flustered when he was questioned on a lack of PPE, PPE throughout the year. You know, we've, we've seen him become irate at the idea of not being thanked for all the work that was being, do, being done. We've seen Boris Johnson at the start of the pandemic boast about shaking people's hands. So there's a lot to answer for in terms of a conversation, you know, the the procurement policies, the idea of cronyism between who has been given government contracts without any sort of uh, insight into what they can do and what products they can be releasing of quality. The cronyism is actually a very interesting point in terms of the relationship between government and industry is the one. Is there an effective one? And if there is an effective one, why wasn't it used in the first place? I mean, you, you might we might have answered our own question there with the the allegations of cronyism, uh, because I think is it is it is uh, Matt Hancock's pub landlord was the subject of the latest allegation that I read. But yeah, there needs to be a full and thorough investigation, and you'd say that regardless of who was in power. Definitely, because if 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 it can infer, enforce regulation down the line to improve pandemic response, then it's it's for the better. Yeah. I, okay. And just improve the human overall within the NHS, within the government. How much did Boris Johnson's latest um, n- number 10 sort of uh, Zoom they just built for, for press announcements? How much did oh, that two, cost? 2.6 million? million quid. Yeah. A couple of microphones in the stand some chairs. I mean, maximum it costs is a grand from Ikea. Come on. Yeah. Two microphones. You can get you can get two decent microphones for £200. Do you get the feeling I'm probably going a little bit off track here, but it is true for four yeah, of my priorities. <laughs> Anyhow. Well, <laughs> it, it's, just, it's just ridiculous when how much money they spent needlessly on, on things like track and trace, which hasn't worked, and then they go and waste all their other money on, on things they don't need either. What was wrong with the other uh, the other press announcement, announcements they were doing. And for this, I think you, uh, Ian Hislop actually summed it up, summed up nicely on, on question time, is that it's a, it's a wonderful metaphor for the incompetence that we've actually seen at the heart of government throughout this. Not that I'm preempting an inquiry at all by my, uh, my going to detail yeah. like this. <laughs> um, let's come back full circle a little bit, because I want to go back onto vaccination in the US. Uh, because... Uh, Donald Trump's been back in the news. I mean, he's had his uh, he's he's been phoning up Fox News again. Uh, would you like to know what he said? Go on then, because I haven't heard from Donald in a while. Yeah, you, you're probably better for it as well. Here's the first quote I've got for you: Biden failed very badly with the H1N1, as you know. He had a chance to do something, and they had a tremendous, tremendous failure. All right, so that's the previous flu, which went which rolled out across Obama's administration, I suppose he's on about? Yeah. Should we just have a Google of statistics Wait, on that? What year was that? I can't even... Yeah. Okay. This will, this will be the bird flu pandemic of around 2011, or something. Yeah. There's, there's been a few years where the flu vaccine it just wasn't very effective. And it was far lower than predicted. This was swine flu in 2009-10. First outbreak was in North America. So from January 2009 to August 2010, so this was immediately after Obama took office, by the way. Um, Mm -hmm. 
lab confirmed deaths reported to the World Health Organization was 18,449, estimated death toll of 284,000. Um, in the United States, total deaths in the United States came to 12,149. Deaths when President Trump well, left so office. It's a little bit less than that. Yeah, that's when that's when President Trump left the Oval Office in uh, in January. Biden actually held a memorial on the eve of his inauguration to mark four hundred thousand deaths. I think they passed a half a million stage in America now of COVID deaths. So mm-hmm. he's hardly in a position to criticise there. I don't think. Anyway, just the idea of criticising. It's, it's stupid. It's like comparing who who's been stabbed the worst. <laughs> yeah, <It's> like <laughs> both cases are bad, regardless. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I'd put it like that, but I certainly take your point. Uh, um, um, would you like to hear? Would you like to hear what he said about the vaccine? Go on then. He said that he said I would recommend getting it. I would recommend it to a lot of people who don't want to get it. A lot of those people voted for me, frankly. We have our freedoms and we have to live by that and I agree with that also. I was the one and this administration was the one that came up with the vaccine, which is going to save the world. We would be, I think, worse than 1917 when 50 to 100 million people died. The vaccine is such a big thing. I think there's a couple of things to pick up on there. I think he's referring to the Spanish flu of 1918. Yeah, after the First World War started, wasn't it? Something, something like that. Yeah, he's not the best on dates, is Donald. But, um, it, it, I mean, I think those two quotes there that I've just read out to you sum up that it's it's not a case that they should be getting the vaccine just so they can, just so people can live, just so people can get back to normal. I mean, get the vaccine because I was the person that developed it in Donald Trump world. And then and then please vote, vote for me when I try and run for, run for president again in 2024. But... I, I think we can also point out at this stage that Pfizer, Pfizer was the first FDA-approved vaccine and had a grand total of zero help from the federal government. He's just delusional. I just love the, I love the idea that Donald Trump, in his mind, thinks he came up with a vaccine. <laughs> There's probably a conversation going around in his head where he put the idea forward about using some sort of drug. It was that, that cocktail you know, he takes, had. Takes a copy of the virus. Yeah, it was that cocktail he had when he was in hospital. He thinks that's the cure because he kept a corner cure anyway. So he now thinks that's the vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> oh god. I somehow think that the United States is in better shape with Joe Biden as president. <laughs> yeah, it's not a tough call, really. At least we've got someone competent. To a remember, degree. you know, you can disagree with politicians all you want, but he comes across as professional. Yeah, but remember what Trump said during the election campaign, COVID would just disappear after the election. It hasn't. (laughs) It's still here. And he's still talking about it. Never mind Joe Biden. (laughs) With the the absolute monstrosity that was his presidential run, I I wouldn't say another word to the media if I was him for as long as I lived. It's a shame that so many people are still still indulgent of him. But again, I suppose... um, I'm, I'm just as guilty there just for the just for the quotes I've read out, but I actually thought it was interesting that he was calling on people to get the vaccine. Where, But there was an acknowledgement there that his voter base is, contains anti-vaxxers. But um, anyhow, should we move on yeah. from from, uh, from Trump and COVID and the US? Um, because I know I'm currently in production as we, uh, as we speak about the March-April edition of MedTech Innovation News. I don't think you're far off in terms of European pharmaceutical manufacturers' next uh, issue. Is there anything that we should keep an eye out for in there? Yeah, I've got a few things for the next issue. Um, ooh, uh, where, where to start? I'm going to, going to have an interview with Merck um, in, in Europe about sort of the, um, the need for sustainability and uh, packaging plans about how pharmaceutical companies can work on, 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 on reducing packaging and really just reducing over, overall production, not, not costs, but 
be the impact of production across all aspects of the R&D supply chain. Um, it's a really big sort of a program that Merck's trying to implement and it should come across as a foundation for how pharmaceutical companies can operate in the realms of sustainability. So really important environmental focus there. Yeah, sustainability is a massive talking point. Yeah, it's huge. And I think the pharma industry and life sciences has went a little bit under the radar in terms of sustainability, where things like maybe um, ever automotive industry hasn't, you know, or, or air travel, for instance. So really, really important one for life sciences, I think. Uh, we've got things on the logistics, um, on the delivery of COVID-19 vaccine, why that's a, a big challenge. So things that we've been talking about today, about the supply chain, um, just how can we move vaccines across the world, really? Um, and it's all about the sort of technology behind that and how the data needs to be verified. So keep an eye out for that as well. Uh, we got a little bit on digital health too, um, coming from Medidata, um, which is a digital health company which works across clinical trials and other other parts of the in- industry. And it's all about how digital health technologies can really give it a better broader overview of the patient so how they're responding to medicine what their overall healthcare journey is like and how it relates to the medicines they're taking so this idea of holistic healthcare, which has been going around for a number of years within the industry and just how technologies really help bolstering that so they're just a couple of pieces i can go on about the others but uh we'll be on here for about another 20 minutes so just a, a sneak preview there for you <laughs> That sounds like a chunky issue either way. I'm actually looking forward to that dropping through the door. Uh, yeah, what have you got upcoming in, in your latest MTI, Ian? Well, there's a couple of things. I think I actually touched upon this before we actually started recording this, is that we've actually got uh, Roche on the on the cover of our uh, latest issue. And they're talking about, I think there's been a lot of, while well, there's been a lot of focus on, um, on COVID, understandably, ever since the, uh, ever since the start of last year, um, Roche is actually looking at, you know, cancer care and innovations in cancer care, whether that's, you know, before, before, during, and after COVID, really, and how, you know, technological changes that have, you know, taken place can affect innovations going forward too. Um, there's also a couple of um, design consideration pieces for those that are designing medical devices. But there's that one interview I actually done in this, um, in this issue is, uh, is with Medivate. Who are a medical device company? They've got a uh, a device called Sofiva, which is you know it's um, it, it's it's for use in anaesthesia. But uh, the the actual subject of the interview is, is not the device itself; it's how they're actually um, distributing that across the world in a changing regulatory environment. Because obviously, we've just uh, the transition period has ended between the UK and the European Union. So that means the UKCA mark is going to come into force at some stage. Um, so I get their view on basically how they would like that to look, uh, what kind of regulations are still applying now, how they're actually, in the, basically the timeline for when they actually think they're going to have to submit documentation for the new mark. And then there's also the change in regulator we've seen in Europe as well, because there's EU MDR that's coming in this year after being delayed by a year. And then next year we got the in vitro diagnostic regulation too. Um, away from the more dry stuff, we've actually got a little bit of a snippet as to what to expect at the Meditech Innovation Expo in uh, in September as well. Our conference team has actually put together a piece on, you know, a couple of things to look out for on our on our state on our three stages. Very nice. Make sure to check out Medtech Innovation News for all the uh, info on the conference, and if, if you'd like to attend, obviously we have to delay that by the year because of COVID nineteen. But can't wait to see everyone. Everyone back there and all the, the really innovative companies who, who exhibit. And just to point out the um, dry stuff you talk about for the EU regulations is incredibly important because I, I, I think that affects you know, every, every company, every life sciences company within, within the world, essentially, who want to operate throughout the UK and the EU and how those, uh, those policies affect their distribution and marketing. Yeah, though it may be dry, it is incredibly important. But um, yeah, I think there's a 
a couple of issues of magazines there that our listeners have got the teeth to get into. I'm sure they're going to find the, you know, the right piece for them if they're only just flicking through them. But obviously, as well as uh, subscribing to the magazine, you know, if you're trying to get a print copy, you can also read our digital copies online. So if you can't get a hold of a print copy, you know, you can still read the magazine in its entirety online. Yeah, definitely check check those both out when they land, and all the uh, the previous issues as well, which are available. Excellent. Well, that concludes this week's episode of the Med Talk podcast. Thank you, Reese, for another detailed conversation. This has been a long one too, so I hope everyone is still listening by this stage. Bit of a long one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But th- thanks to you all for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes. Anything I've missed out there, Reese? Just anywhere you get your podcast, keep an eye out for us. If we're not on there, we'll be on there soon as well. That's a good way to sign off. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe.